Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earl. Hey, we're here today with Dr. Marissa G. Franco talking about her book, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Dr. Franco is an enlightening psychologist and national speaker known for digesting and communicating science in ways that resonate deeply enough with people to change their lives. She is a professor at the University of Maryland and writes for Psychology Today, has been featured in the New York Times, NPR, and Good Morning America. She gives talks about connection and belonging all over the country to private companies, universities, and nonprofit organizations, and she currently lives in Washington, D.C. We're going to be speaking with Marissa today about friendship and how, in a lot of ways, friendship has been given a backseat in our culture recently. We've somehow created this hierarchy of relationships and romantic ones are seen as more important than platonic ones. But research shows that's not true. Friendships are vitally important for our happiness and well-being in life. Friendships help teenagers to develop empathy, to engage in self-expansion, and to tackle difficult problems in our lives. We tend to think of friendships as something that should be effortless or should happen naturally, but actually research shows that it's a lot of work. People who have the best friendships are the ones who are willing to put in the effort to put themselves out there, to be vulnerable, and to initiate. Of course, at the same time, we don't want to be too vulnerable. We don't want to overshare. We don't want to open ourselves up in a way that's annoying or bothers other people or pushes other people away. How do we strike the right balance? And how do we teach our teenagers to do the same in their own friendships? The answers are all coming up on today's episode with Dr. Marissa Franco. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Woo! So um, I just finished reading your book yesterday, which is about friendship and how the science of attachment can help us to make and keep friends. Talk to me about this topic. Is this something you've been interested in for a long time or what inspired you to write the book? Yeah, so for me, it was about realizing that we all feel so lonely in this culture, and yet we throw this form of love and connection away. We treat friendship as secondary, unnecessary, auxiliary. To me, it's like gold under our feet is that we see as concrete. So I just wanted to help us create a culture where we're taking friendship more seriously as a form of connection and seeing it as more valuable, kind of leveling this hierarchy that we place on love with romantic love at the top is the only love that you know, makes us worthy or means true connection and seeing other forms of love is not mattering. 
I found some really powerful lines in your book when you were talking about that hierarchy and then you made some points like how we talk about how oh, we should, we're just friends as if it's less important or lower than and so much of kind of just the way that we think about friendship, that it's kind of this like secondary type of relationship, which then really is interesting why we do that. Exactly. We see it in our language and our policies and our media that friendship is viewed as a lesser form of connection. And uh, what's going on with that? Hmm. Well, I do talk about in the book that it wasn't always this way, that earlier before the love marriage, like people used to get married for resources, reputation, Yeah. you know, it looks good for our names to be confined. And at that time, people didn't expect love from their spouse. And in fact, the genders were considered so distinct that the idea was that you can find deep intimacy only with your friends because mm-hmm. they have the same gender as you. Well, not always, but yeah, in this case. So friends would hold hands, write their names into trees, share beds, cuddle, write love letters, go on each other's honeymoons with their spouses. This was all really normal. Part of what changed was when two psychiatrists, Richard Von Kraft Ebbing, Sigmund Freud, they basically changed the way society viewed sexuality. Before them, it was taboo to have sex with someone of the same sex, but sexual orientation as an identity didn't exist. And they created it to stigmatize it and say that it indicates that you have kind of this development that had gone awry. And in doing that and creating this concept of sexual orientation as a reflection of someone's identity and poor development, all of a sudden there were all these behaviors that became stigmatized that were non sexual in nature, because now a whole identity was stigmatized, a consolation of behaviors, not just having sex with some of the same sex. So all those things that were natural and normal in friendship, like holding hands and cuddling and sharing these kind of love letters to each other, so it began to become stigmatized as indicating this sexual orientation that they argued was that was bad, indicated that you had psychological problems. So homophobia, basically, as we know it today, really ravaged friendship. You really make a strong case for the importance of friendship. And there's some really interesting studies in here talking about just loneliness and how helpful friendship is in so many ways. One thing I found interesting, though, is you talk about a study When men were alone, they rated an alleged terrorist as more imposing than when they were with friends. Another study found people judged a hill as less steep when they were with friends. And um, I thought that was really cool, you know, how friends can really make us feel almost more powerful or more bold or something like that. But it also made me think about our audience and teenagers. And a lot of times parents are like... uh, oh, 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 you're going to do more risky things when you're with friends or feeling kind of emboldened and stuff, maybe has a double-edged sword or something like that. And uh, I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, it is complicated because Lydia Denworth, she's another friendship expert. She talks about how like basically when you're around friends as a teenager, risky things come Mm. off as more rewarding at the level of your brain. (laughs) So there is truth to Uh, that. But uh, the other truth is that challenges feel less challenging. So that hill seems less steep and that homework assignment, that's why uh, connection is related to academic outcomes for kids because academics seem less challenging. You can access a study group and work with people. So yeah, the more friends kids make in college, for example, the more likely they are to succeed. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I, yeah, I can do this. 
yeah, exactly. I can do this. I have support. And I also like care about it. That's what, yeah. when we feel like we belong somewhere, we care about that place. So yeah. there's more of a motivation to show up for school because if I lose this place, I don't only lose my academics, I lose my entire community and my sense of belonging. You also talk about empathy and specifically uh, talk about saying dozens of studies highlight friendship's unique role in promoting empathy. For adolescents, friendship is a distinct space to practice empathy. So research finds that during adolescence, kindness towards friends increases while kindness toward family is stagnant or decreases. <laughs> I, that sounds familiar. I, <laughs> I have uh, experience with that. Yeah. Interesting. What, yeah. Well, so what's going on there? Yeah. So like it's, at some point in childhood, your primary attachment, which means like the place that you kind of feel safest and that you're most excited about investing in goes from being parents to peers. Mm. So peers become super duper important to your child and to your teenager. And you might seem like they're less interested in hanging out with you and they're more interested in hanging out with their friends. And that is developmentally appropriate, you know, not something to take personally. It's going to happen with all the teenagers. I see it happening yeah. with my nieces. I'm like, you don't like hanging out with me anymore. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think talking about friendship with adolescence is really fascinating because I talk about how our friends have really made us who we are. And there's research that finds that whether you have friends in adolescence predicts your self-esteem as an adult and mm. even your levels of empathy later on, your morality. And so there is this way that friendship was at the center of all of our lives at one point. Like there was all, you know, no matter where we are now, at one point in our lives, probably the friend was the person that was, we felt maybe most closest to in this world. And there is this amnesia that happens after, you know, I see my students, they're freshmen, sophomore in college, and they're still so invested in friendship. And I'm in my early thirties and I just see how there's more of this kind of like, you know, nuclear families being set up and people yeah. becoming more insular with their kids and their families, which is understandable. You know, kids are a, a full-time commitment. But yeah, all of us had this time where friendship was so, so central. So it's not so foreign to all of us to consider that friends could be in and into itself, like, an, a, you know, an amazing relationship in itself, rather than I think as we get older or in my age group, sometimes it's perceived as auxiliary, unnecessary because you have this marriage, which I also argue against in the book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of people have had that experience of having a good friend who gets married or starts dating someone and feeling like you just got demoted in that mm -hmm. person's life or in their hierarchy of something. And yeah, it doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by self-expansion? Friendship is a powerful trigger for self-expansion. That sounds good. Yeah. So this theory called self-expansion theory basically argues that we're always looking to expand our sense of self, our sense of who we are. Yeah. And the primary way that we do that is through our relationships. So we're all motivated to engage in relationships with others because others expose us to new ways of showing up in the world. Mm. And they help us figure out who we are because it's like this friend likes golf. Now I think about, do I like golf, right? I can incorporate that into my identity. It's like friends are like a huge marketing team for all the ways we could live our lives. And in that way, they really help us mm. just figure out who we really are. 
Uh, so is this uh, kind of counterproductive to have this whole book all about friendship and how to, you know, create and promote friendship? Shouldn't friendship just be effortless and, and feel natural? No, I mean, no, it's not happening naturally. Our friendship networks have been shrinking for decades. Let's not uh, assume it happens organically. I talk about in the book how for kids, sometimes it happens more organically because they have what Rebecca G. Adams, sociologist, considers essential parts of friendship happening organically, hmm. seeing people repeatedly over time in an yeah. unplanned way, like school, right. and then being vulnerable. So that's like recess, gym, lunch. But as adults, we don't really have that. I mean, workplace, I don't know, a lot of workplaces don't really, people don't feel comfortable being so vulnerable in the ways that they might at school. Mm. So in adulthood, actually thinking that it happens organically is linked to being more lonely over time. Oh, but I also think it's important to like tell the kids this too, that like don't expect it to happen organically because they're, even if they can make friends more organically because they have the right setting, they'll make more friends if they take initiative, first of all. And second of mm -hmm. all, actually like Gen Z is the loneliest generation of any generation. And so there's this way that even though it used to happen organically for most of us, yeah. for Gen Z, I think because of the role of technology, yeah. it's not, those connections aren't happening as naturally as they used to for previous generations. seems like it's becoming more and more important to be proactive and uh, or you talk about being intentional and you, you talk about your friend Lori who for during freshman year of college and how you realized that actually Lori had been really intentional about initiating friendship yeah and we're still best friends because she did yeah all these years later yeah and like my story with Lori is like Sometimes you think it's happening organically, but that's just because the other person is taking the initiative and you're not. <laughs> and if you just um, sit around and wait for it to happen organically, then you're also settling for whatever friends happen to initiate or take interest in you or happen to kind of just work out or fall into. Whereas when you're more intentional, then you're actually, you know, pursuing friendships with people that, that you really want to be friends with. And there's a big difference there. Exactly. You know, you get to decide like, so in my classes on loneliness, one of the classes they hang out outside a class and the other they don't. Mm. So I'm trying to figure out what's the difference between these two classes. Interesting. Why is one of them hanging out and they send me a picture of 10 of them getting lunch together and the other isn't. And what I determined is that one class has something I call an igniter. An igniter is my student uh. who says, I'm going to lunch. Anybody want to come? Everybody's invited. Mm. And because she's willing to risk rejection, 10 other people in the class now have community on her behalf, right? Mm. And so if we can become igniters, I've seen this too, because I'm an igniter, obviously. I wrote this book, so <laughs> I'm in a good position to be an igniter. I go to a friend's party. I see five out of seven people there are people that I've introduced her to through my network. So yeah, right. the igniter starts the groups. And because mm. they start the groups, they get to curate the group. They get to decide what the group does. It's vulnerable. You're risking more rejection. It's a lot more work. But also like seven other people have friends now because of you, because they were waiting for it to happen organically and you created that infrastructure for it for so many people. So because we're so lonely, I think 
I wish we had more igniters and not people just waiting, people that initiated and created that community for so many. Mm. What do you think that parents can do to help our kids to be more of an igniter, to empower them, to put themselves out there like that? So one big tip that I share to make friends is to assume people like you. Because when researchers told people to that they'd be liked based on their personality profiles, this was false. This wasn't true. It made people go out into this group and be more friendly and more likable. So it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas those people that tend to think they'll be rejected, they come off as rejecting. They they are cold. They're withdrawn. I see it with my students. You know, they're coming on this field trip to make friends, but they're like have their headphones in their ears and they're not talking to anyone. And right. who wants to approach that? You know, but they're just really afraid of rejection themselves. Yeah, yeah. Put these barriers up so that we don't have to face the possibility of rejection. It's, exactly. It's a safe little bubble. Yeah. So when I met a woman who was really good at making friends. She was like, this is what my mom always told me. Mm. Everybody wants to be your friend. They're just waiting for you to initiate. Mm. So that's what we got to tell our kids that, hey. I love that. People like you, kid. They're just waiting for you to initiate it. Some of these ideas are pretty simple, but really make a lot of sense. This You're talking here about propinquity and this study where they listed, they sat people alphabetically and oh, police officers, and they looked at which ones would become friends. And, and it was like 90% of them were that developed a friendship with someone they sat next to, which yeah, like you were saying, a school kind of just creates that kind of situation where you're going to get maybe shuffled up and put sat next to different people for an extended period of time and get exposed to people and have almost kind of like perfect storm to be connecting with people. And I definitely remember noticing after graduating from college and like feeling like, wow, it's, it's really different <laughs> trying to mm-hmm. trying to make friends and connect with people when you move to a new city, but you're an adult and you don't just you take it for granted that, you know, Oh, yeah, it's easy to make friends when you just are sitting next to someone for a whole semester or something like that. But yeah, not as easy in a lot of adult situations where we just kind of maybe see people one time and never see them again or something like that. So exactly. And that's another tip you could share with your kid, because when we consistently are in the same setting with people, we create connection. And in the book, I talk about the mere exposure effect, which is Mm. this finding that we unconsciously come to like people just from being exposed to them. So there was this study where researchers planted women into a large psychology lecture at the end of the semester. Nobody remembers any of the women, but they like the woman who showed up to the most classes 20% more than the one that didn't show up to any. 20% more. Yeah, so what that means is, first of all, because mere exposure effect says if you're more exposed, you begin to like people. When you first meet people, it's going to be awkward and you're going to be weary and you're going to be mistrusting. That's not a sign to jump ship for connection. That's a sign that you're on the trajectory of connection. So making sure we tell our kids that, that connection requires a period of discomfort at first, and then it gets better over time. And making sure that our kids commit to something that's repeated over time, any extracurricular, really, will do this for them. Yeah, yeah. 
that's why joining different clubs and groups and teams are such a great way to make friends because you can uh, say you see these same people for an extended period of time once a week or twice a week or whatever it might be and have yeah it's bonding exactly talk about uh, vulnerability a lot and you talk about something called packaging vulnerability to make it more palatable the issue with packaged vulnerability is emotions are the cues for other people so they know how to respond we package our vulnerability to seem less helpless what does that mean how do we package vulnerability it's when we say something that sounds vulnerable but like the content of it sounds vulnerable, but the way we express it isn't vulnerable, right? Like I'm saying it almost like, mm. oh yeah, like my grandma died in a very matter of fact way. Um. And that's a way to make it feel a little less vulnerable. You kind of disconnect from the emotion of it. But the problem is that vulnerability and how you express things actually makes people more likely to pay attention, right? There's a reason why we have this emotional reaction when we're sharing something vulnerable, because mm. it signals to other people, hey, listen, give me care, give me support. So these people that package their vulnerability and they take the emotion out of it and they, they think they're being vulnerable because they're expressing something that sounds deep, but it's right, right, a yeah. disconnect. It's almost like with sarcasm. Mm they don't end up getting the support they need because other people are like, well, she seems good. So, I mean, sex about, you know, the right. dog, but, but I don't have to like reach out to her because she seems okay. You write that a study found people who suppressed their emotions went on to receive less social support in their first year of college and report less feelings of closeness to others. And they were less satisfied with their relationships. Yeah. That's really profound. I think. Yeah. And it makes me think about like boys, young boys, the ways that they are taught. I was just talking about this lesson in my class and one boy was like, yeah. I don't even remember being taught not to be vulnerable. It just happened automatically. Like the, it's in the air we breathe, this message that men, boys should not be vulnerable. And it harms them so much psychologically. Like concealing your emotions is related to distress and even suicidality. And it's related to like, if you conceal something like the death of your spouse, you experience more health problems in the next year. So I think it's particularly important for parents to make sure that they are encouraging emotional expression of their sons as a way to help their sons find connection. Because if their sons are never vulnerable, again, we, you just read the study, right? Their relationships are less meaningful. They're getting less support, yeah. feeling less satisfied with their connections. What do you think that parents can do to encourage that or to make boys feel you know, comfortable or safe to share more of their emotions? So fathers should be sharing their emotions. A lot of boys report that they kind of look to their role models and how their role models are dealing with things emotionally. So if you as a father are always like, you know, I'm fine, you never cry, you never say anything vulnerable to your in the context of your family. Yeah. That's the automatic way that your, your son is going to become invulnerable too, because he's watched you and he witnessed you. So, you know, more fathers welcoming therapy, welcoming their own expression of emotion. You know, there's a lot of things that you should not say to your son, like you're okay. a man, so don't cry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, suck it up. Yeah, not the suck it up mentality that is, you know, encourages a lot of psychologically harmful internalization and suppression of emotions. Mm -hmm. And literally just like, 
I don't know, asking your kid, you, both your, all your kids, how does that, you know, make you feel or what emotions uh, are coming up for you? What was that like for you? Like showing curiosity about their own internal world so that mm -hmm. they have this practice of sharing with you that they bring in their connections moving forward. Yeah. And then obviously, um, you know, validating that when they do share something or not making them feel like they shouldn't have shared it or bad for sharing it or something. Yeah, and don't go into, now let me give you advice on what you need to do better. <laughs> Resist the urge. <laughs> We're here with Dr. Marissa G. Franco talking about her book, Platonic, and how we can help our teenagers have better friendships. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Your kids are picking up on what you do, not what you say. So the better you get at making friends and finding security, the more that your kid is going to be likely to. Like one predictor of whether kids have friends is whether they see their parents having friends. One of my suggestions for trying to navigate friendships when you're busy is finding the things that you have to do throughout the day already and finding community within them. Like if you like to run, can you do a running group? If you're working from home, you don't have colleagues, could you make a friend your colleague, invite a friend over to co-work with you, right? Like, mm. you know, even using your commute to call someone. Like there's just parts of your day that you can make more communal. And that's not having to add time to your schedule, but yeah, being more creative about your schedule. I would have felt too scary to open up conversation with someone because I thought they'd it would come off as weird. I would have, you know, just not have been so intentional and able and comfortable to just ask people like, hey, yeah, let me invite you to this event. But now that I know people are literally waiting for you to ask, so understanding how other people are scared too, it just made it so much easier. In a healthy friendship, we're both thinking about both our needs, right? So I don't necessarily want my friend to pick me up at the airport at 2 a.m. if I could take an Uber, because I'm thinking about them too, right. right? Unless I really need it and I have no other option. We're mean because we're fearful. We're mean because we're scared. We're mean because we're in the self-protective stance of, you know, I'm going to put you down and judge you because I actually feel bad. Yeah. Or I'm going to come off as cold and withdrawn because it's vulnerable for me to admit that I need friends. And the secure people are able to just come clean with that underlying fear and that underlying need instead of it manifesting as you being judgmental, you being hyper-dominant of others, you putting other people down because they can acknowledge their own weaknesses or limitations and their own flaws without having to compensate. It's that compensatory behavior like, oh, I feel bad that my kid didn't get into this college. So now I'm going to say, well, I called your kid gone. She wasn't that great. I feel bad that you got this promotion because uh, I feel insecure. So now I'm going to say, well, you know, I don't know why they picked you, right? So authenticity is acknowledging that you feel a little bit jealous or acknowledging that you feel, you know, that you want to support your friend, but a part of you is, is struggling because you're going through your own stuff instead of being inauthentic in ways that defend against that feeling within you, but damage your relationships. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.